Entwined by Rochelle Canigal. Joyce Scott freed her twin sister from an institution and unlocked her own life as well. On a spring day in 1943, Lillian Scott gave birth to twin girls. They were alike in many ways, conceived at the same moment, dressed in identical tiny dresses, tucked into the same bed each evening, but also profoundly different. Joyce, the firstborn by minutes, was a healthy baby, destined for the challenges and triumphs of what we regard as normal life. Judith emerged with the dwarfed and flattened facial features of a child with Down syndrome. Though no one knew it at the time, Judith was also later discovered to be profoundly deaf. Despite the chasm between them, one that grew with each passing year, Joyce Scott will tell you that once a twin, always a twin. As Joyce plunged into life, becoming a mother and a healthcare professional, her sister was never far from her thoughts, although she lived in an institution across the country. Over time, though, the distance between them, both literal and metaphorical, began to cause Joyce pain. This is the story of how Joyce and Judith were reunited and how, in many ways, they rescued each other. In the beginning, the girls were inseparable. Left to their own devices by three older brothers, they spent long afternoons digging in the sandpit in their suburban Cincinnati backyard, staging pretend tea parties, playing games they invented themselves. But as years passed, their differences became more apparent. Joyce marked each normal childhood milestone, while Judith lagged further behind. Long after Joyce was speaking in complete sentences, Judith could only babble. I so wanted her to talk, says Joyce. I would pretend she talked. In my dreams she would talk. When it was time for the twins to start school, their parents had Judith tested, hoping she might qualify for the one class in the public school system for children with learning disabilities. But Judith couldn't answer the majority of the questions. No one realised she was deaf, Joyce says. The tester would say, point to the circle, and she had no idea even what words were. At that time, families rarely kept severely disabled children at home, and pressure to send Judith away began to mount. We talked to the minister, all the psychologists, and everyone said the same thing. We should put her in an institution, says Lillian. It nearly broke my heart. One autumn morning when she was seven and a half, Joyce woke to find an empty place in the bed she shared with her sister. Her parents explained that Judith was going to a place where people could take better care of her. Joyce recalls feeling utterly bereft. I remember this extreme sense of loneliness and emptiness without her. The family visited Judith at the cold and labyrinthine Columbus State School whenever they could, but the institution was a three-hour car drive away. After five years, they moved Judith to the Gallipolis Development Centre, slightly more modern than Columbus, but farther still from the Scott home. The family visited less and less, especially after Joyce and Judith's father died in 1956, leaving Lillian to raise her four children at home on her own. At Gallipolis, Judith received little education or training. She never learnt to speak, read or write, and even after her deafness was diagnosed when Judith was in her thirties, she was not taught sign language. Meanwhile, Joyce grew up, went to university and moved to California, where she married, started a family and embarked on a nursing career. Months, sometimes years, passed between trips to Ohio to visit Judith. Joyce's daughter, Elana, 
remembers at age nine accompanying her mother on a trip and meeting her Aunt Judy for the first time. It had been years since they'd seen each other, but when Judy saw my mum, she knew her right away. My mum just started sobbing. In 1985, Joyce, who had begun working with dying patients and wanted to recharge her spirits, went on a retreat in the Santa Cruz Mountains outside San Francisco. During hours alone, she became consumed with thoughts of her sister. There was something about being in that silence, Joyce says. I became aware not only of the depth of our connection, but that there was no reason we should be separated. Before the retreat was over, she decided that she and Judy would spend the rest of their lives together. Joyce made arrangements to become her sister's legal guardian, and a year later flew Judith to California to live. She soon found a nursing home near her house in Berkeley, where Judith would get the daily care she needed. And on the advice of a psychologist friend, Joyce signed Judith up for classes in Oakland at the Creative Growth Art Centre, a studio for people with disabilities. The open, airy warehouse where artists teach classes in painting, ceramics and rug making is an amazing place, Joyce explains. There's such a sense of freedom and creativity. For the first few months, Judith would arrive for class each morning and just sit at one of the large tables, staring blankly as instructors offered her paints, clay and coloured pencils to work with. She was ornery and stubborn, says Sylvia Seventy, who taught at the centre. People would try to get her to do something and she wouldn't move. Eventually, the instructor broke through. She's funny and I'm funny, Sylvia says. Sometimes I would mimic her expressions and she'd laugh. She began to like me. Sylvia started working with Judith on a rug canvas, showing her how to sew with a tapestry needle and wool. She would sew and sew until the whole thing was full of wool, the instructor says. Then one day, Judith began wrapping wool round a bunch of willow sticks. She added twine, fabric, wire mesh and blocks of wood to the creation. Once she started working with wool and wrapping objects, it was like Judith found a voice for something that had not been expressed before, explains Stan Peterson, another teacher at the centre. In the months that followed, Judith began to develop a definite and unique style. She would start with some discarded objects, a skateboard, a broken fan, a shoe, and wrap them in wool or string, working hour upon hour until the core object was unrecognisable. Some of her works grew so big they required two men to carry them away. While most were abstract shapes, a few early pieces had a doll-like quality about them. Judith called her first three-dimensional sculpture Bubba and rocked it in her arms. Another was a pair of figures wrapped in black wool. When Joyce saw them, she wept. I thought, that's us. In 1989, Frank Maresca, co-owner of New York's Rico Maresca Gallery, which shows the work of outsider and self-taught artists, visited Creative Growth and became captivated by Judith's work. This was something I'd never seen before, these very textural cocoons that hid within them who knew what, Maresca says. I felt drawn to the exterior and sucked into the mystery of the interior. Maresca began to exhibit and sell Judith's pieces, some of which have fetched as much as $23,000 each. Most of her financial needs are taken care of by Social Security, so Judith's earnings are put in trust for her. As word of her art spread, curators came to look at the enigmatic fibre sculptures and to meet Judith. In recent years, her work has been shown at museums and galleries in Chicago, San Francisco, Paris and Tokyo. 
1999, art historian John McGregor profiled Scott in the book Metamorphosis, The Fibre Art of Judith Scott, and the American Folk Art Museum accepted five pieces from Judith's collection. Joyce says Judith has no concept of her fame, but has been transformed by the public attention. She's more outgoing now, Joyce says. She used to be suspicious, shut down, closed off. Now she radiates love of her life. Joyce, too, has changed. When Judy was in the institution, it felt like a part of me was missing. Being together and watching her blossom has been tremendously healing. For me to be near her just feels so right. On a recent sunny morning, Judith sits in her usual corner of the brick and glass art studio, working on her latest piece, a broken parasol wrapped in multicolored wool. Slowly, methodically, she cuts off a meter of sky blue wool from a ball and weaves the strand through the half-covered ribs of the parasol, tying, wrapping, snipping, and starting again with a new piece of wool. A small, plump woman with wispy hair, she works intently, taking only an occasional break to sip a soft drink. When her sister walks into the room, Judith immediately breaks into a smile. She waves like a child, opening and closing her hand. Joyce greets her sister with a hug. Hands grasp and lips press against cheeks. A twin is always a twin. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au Brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia.